Our text this morning is Luke chapter 24. If you would turn there in your Bibles, and as you do so, I would just like to say a word of thanks to you all. Um, as Pastor Ryan said, we have come out as a family. Um, it's not often that when I'm invited to speak or preach somewhere, I get to travel with the whole Twist clan. Uh, we try and make it a goal that I would always take at least one of the kids. It's very rare that everyone gets to go, and uh, it really has been our joy this week to be with you, uh, to be with the youth in the church, and we've just had a, a wonderful, wonderful week uh, exploring the island. We've never been to Hawaii before, and it's just been a, a great week for us, so we're very grateful to you as a church family for your generosity and um, love for us in allowing us to do that. As you can hear, I'm not from L.A. I mean, we are. We came from there, but originally not from L.A., more indirectly, originally from the U.K. Um, We moved to Los Angeles nearly 10 years ago now, 10 years this summer, uh, for me to study at the Master's Seminary. Before that, I was in the Royal Navy, and um, I served seven years. First year of my naval career, I was on an aircraft carrier, and then shortly after that, I was pushed down a sardine tin, uh, otherwise known as a submarine, and I spent the next six years uh, of my naval career going to sea under the water, at which point we thought it was time to leave, And, uh, and we made the move to America. At the time, we had three children. Uh, I did my studies at the Master's Seminary. Uh, we had three more kids, so we now have three American citizens in our family. And, um, and in the Lord's providence, at the end of my studies, I was asked to, to stay on and teach there, uh, which is never, ever what we had planned or even imagined. But uh, here we are, um, now 10 years in, and I now have the privilege of teaching students at the seminary. And... Um, and occasionally getting to do things like this, which is, is a, great, a great joy for us. Um, so our text is, is the Road to Emmaus narrative, verses 13 through to 35 of Luke 24. Uh, I'll read the text beginning at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. 
when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So reads the word of God. Caravaggio was an enigmatic man, one of the most famous painters of the Italian Baroque era. Caravaggio spent much of his life in exile. Early on in his career, he had got into an argument with another man and ended up killing him. He was sentenced to death, and so he fled his hometown of Naples and spent most of the rest of his life in a self-imposed exile, painting and running. We don't know as much about Caravaggio as we would like to know, but we do have a number of his paintings, and perhaps one of his most famous paintings is of this very scene. Caravaggio painted the supper at Emmaus. It's found in London today, and it's a fascinating painting for a number of details. Caravaggio chose to paint Jesus without a beard, no facial hair, one of the few times that has ever happened, and he was criticized for it. Caravaggio uses light in the painting to represent knowledge. And so when you look at the painting, you see Jesus at the table with two disciples And then there's a servant figure stood by serving the men their food. And there's a beam of light that comes into the painting, illuminating Jesus' face, but also the disciples. The servant is off to one side in the darkness. And the implication is that Caravaggio is depicting the moment at which the disciples' eyes were opened and they recognized this man with whom they were eating for who he truly was. There's one other feature of the painting, one other detail that is often overlooked, and it is simply a fruit bowl. In the scene, Caravaggio includes a fruit bowl in the foreground of his painting. And what's interesting about the fruit bowl is that it rests on the table, but only half. Half of the bowl is on the table, and half of it is off. And it looks as if The bowl is about to to topple off the table. You get the impression that one second later, this bowl would be spilling off the table and the fruit would go everywhere. It's a small detail, but art critics suggest that this was Caravaggio's skillful way of bringing you into the painting. As you look at the painting and you notice this fruit bowl that near toppling, there's this urge in you to, to reach forward and to grab it. To not let the fruit spill, and that was Caravaggio's way of inviting you in to participate in this scene. In a similar way, Luke records this episode on the road to Emmaus in such a manner that he wants us to participate. Luke's desire is that we would not be passive standers by as we read of how these disciples came face to face with the Lord Jesus but rather that we would involve ourselves in this narrative. There are lessons here for us to learn. It's important to note the particular way in which Luke brings us in. It's not with a fruit bowl, but it's actually by telling us at the very beginning that this man who showed up is Jesus. In verse 15, Luke tells us Jesus himself drew near. He reveals to us the identity of this stranger from the very beginning, and that is critically important. Our interpretation of the whole passage hinges on the fact that we know who this man is. 
if Luke had not told us at the very beginning that this man was Jesus, then we would be like the disciples. We would be reading this account like them, scratching our heads, wondering who is this man that just showed up that knows so much about what just happened. We would be like the disciples in a position of ignorance. And the implication would be that Luke thinks we, like them, need to still put all the pieces together. If Luke had kept us in ignorance and not told us that this was Jesus, the implication would be that we have lessons still to learn, just like the disciples did. By contrast, what Luke does is he tells us from the very beginning, this man was Jesus. We know from the very beginning, and so we watch the disciples as they try and figure this out, as they try and put the pieces together. We are in a very privileged position knowing that this is Jesus, and we get to enjoy the episode. It's not suspense-filled for us. We know this is Jesus. And the implication is that Luke assumes we don't have the same lessons to learn as these disciples. Coming at the very end of Luke's gospel, I think Luke's assumption is that we have been reading his gospel chapter by chapter and putting all the pieces together along the way. Luke's assumption is that by now, having read of the crucified Christ and of the empty tomb, we now know for sure that it was necessary that the Christ must suffer, and in his suffering there is victory. Luke assumes that we have come to that confession of faith. And as he closes his gospel, he gives us this story in such a way so as to affirm our faith. Not so as to put the pieces together as if we still haven't figured it out, but so as to say, yes, you have it right. We get encouraged as we read the Road to Emmaus account in our faith. Luke wants to encourage us and even to strengthen us, to strengthen us knowing that very soon after, Jesus will ascend. And when he ascends, the disciples now pick up the baton, and there is work to be done. And Luke knows that in the days to come, there will undoubtedly be trials for these disciples, hardships, They'll face affliction and persecution for the sake of the gospel, and they need to be encouraged. And so this passage for us affirms us in our profession of faith in Christ and strengthens us for the work ahead. Now, we can work through the text according to four scenes, and I've divided it up just in accordance with the flow. The first part of the episode I've called An Unforgettable Journey, verses 13 through 17. An unforgettable journey followed by an important conversation, 18 through 27. A memorable meal, 28 through 31. And then finally, a sure declaration, 32 through 35. We'll work through them in turn, beginning with the unforgettable journey. Luke notes that this journey happened that very day, meaning the day of Jesus' resurrection. So everything is, is brand new. Jesus' tomb is empty, but it's only been like that for a few hours. He is freshly risen from the grave. On that day, two of the men started to make a journey towards Emmaus. Seven-mile journey, he notes, and as they're discussing... Jesus shows up. Verse 16, we're told their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That passive voice there, they were kept, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The use of the passive voice is Luke's subtle way at hinting it was God that did this. God sovereignly kept their eyes from recognizing who this man was. And then Jesus questions them about the conversation that they're having. At that point, they stop walking. They stand still, and Luke simply says they were looking sad. Now, that's a short introduction to what's about to happen. But it's actually more significant an introduction than perhaps you might think. 
And the reason for that is because if we zoom out, and if we were to look at the whole of Luke's gospel, in fact, if we were to look at Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, which he also writes, what we come to see is that Luke often uses journeys in order to instruct. There are lots of journeys in the book of Luke and the book of Acts. The gospel begins with a journey as Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth. The gospel of Luke is the only gospel to tell us the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the good Samaritan. Both stories hinge upon journeys that have been taken. It's in Luke's gospel that Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is made much of. From chapter 9 onwards, Jesus has set his face to go towards Jerusalem. We get this journey on the road to Emmaus. And then in the book of Acts, there are more journeys. We read this morning of the Ethiopian eunuch who was on a journey. He had just come from Jerusalem to worship and now was heading back. Of course, we read of the Apostle Paul and his journey on the road to Damascus. And then the book concludes with a long journey at sea as Paul heads for Rome. Luke loves to use journeys in his narrative as a teaching point. What is the purpose of it? As you study the various journeys in Luke and Acts, what you see is that every single time the one making the journey has a surprising encounter with God's grace. Each time the pilgrim on the journey encounters God's grace in a surprising way. Think about that Ethiopian eunuch on the way back from Jerusalem. In the Lord's sovereignty, he comes into contact with Philip, who then explains the gospel to him. He's able to put his faith in Christ because of this chance encounter. He has a surprising encounter with God's grace. And so when you realize that's how journeys work in Luke's writing... Immediately, the irony of what just happened becomes clear. Here are two men on a journey. As good students of Luke and Acts, we say they're about to encounter God's grace. And that's an understatement because they become face-to-face with Jesus himself. They meet the risen Lord Jesus. That's an encounter with God's grace. And then ironically, they look sad. They just met Jesus, and they look sad. This whole account is layered with irony throughout, and the first expression of it is found right there in verse 17, as these men meet the Lord Jesus, but they don't realize it, and so they're lacking joy. Indeed, they look sad, and the word there means gloomy. There's a dark cloud hanging over them. The irony is yet another mechanism that invites us into the picture. As we read of this, we want to say, don't be sad. Be joy-filled because this is Christ and the tomb is empty. That is the proclamation of our hearts as we read this narrative and not only as we read this text. Luke impresses the point upon us. As we read the road to Emmaus, yes, we should be joy-filled that we know the tomb was empty and that this was Christ. But that should be the attitude of our heart every day. Not just the Sunday where we study this text, not just every Sunday, not just on Easter Sunday when we think particularly about the empty tomb, but every hour of every day, the Christian should be marked by a deep-seated, steadfast joy in the truth of the empty tomb. And it might be that you're here this morning not knowing that joy. It may be that you've never put your faith in Christ in a saving way, so you have never known that joy. Or it might be that you're here as a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus, but you're very distracted. If you're honest, it's been some time since you've set your heart to meditate upon the truth of the empty tomb. You're not much in the mind of thinking upon the glory of the risen Lord Jesus. And so, no wonder there is not much joy in your life. 
We are so easily distracted and we so readily give our attention to other things. And we forget the fact that focusing on other things will never satisfy you. Focusing on other things will never bring us the joy that the gospel gives. As we read of these men looking sad as they met Jesus, the challenge is that we would renew our hearts to the glory of the gospel by which we have been saved, specifically that Christ is risen. And in that we would find much joy. Luke then goes on to narrate the conversation that these men had. Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? And I've labeled this an important conversation. That's the understatement of the year. An important conversation. Jesus says, so so what is it that you're talking about? And what the men do then is they recount all that's happened in the last few years. Their ignorance concerning the identity of Christ is emphasized again as they label him a visitor. And then they recount the fact that this man, Jesus, had been amongst them. They say he was a prophet, a man sent from God, a spokesperson for God who taught us. They acknowledge his ministry of of teaching and doing great miracles amongst them. They then go further. They augment their confession of his identity by saying, we had hoped he was the redeemer of Israel. Not merely a prophet, but so much more. Our hope was that he would save us. But, they say, he was handed over. He was handed over to the the authorities. The authorities condemned him to death, and they crucified him. This man in whom we had put all our hope died on a cross, they say. Then they tell Jesus how since then, three days have passed, We received news this morning from the women that the tomb is empty. Others have confirmed it, but they haven't seen him. Again, the irony is palpable. These men just preached the gospel to Jesus. They just told Jesus the message of salvation. They have all the pieces. They have all the right pieces of information. But they just can't put them together. It's like they have a jigsaw puzzle on the table. They're not missing any pieces, but they can't put them together. My wife, Laura, loves jigsaw puzzles. She grew up in her home doing jigsaw puzzles. Every Christmas they would buy one and as a family sit around and do it. I didn't have that experience and I don't share her love for jigsaw puzzles. But I join in occasionally and so around about Christmas we'll buy a puzzle with a ridiculous number of pieces and we'll lay them all out on the table. And when you get beyond about a thousand, it gets silly because now there's a corner of the puzzle which you know is some object that's red but you've got 500 red pieces. And you just, I can't put them together. She has a particular skill for doing it. I sit there and one piece is the same as the next and I can't put them together. It's exactly like the disciples. They had the information. They couldn't put it together or if we could say this, there was one piece in particular that they were struggling to locate. And it was this, that the Christ had to suffer as part of his mission. They were looking at the cross as an evidence of failure. They looked at his death as a sign of tragedy. But what Jesus does is he tells them that failure was actually fulfillment. The tragedy actually signals triumph. You see, he goes on, he responds to them, and he asks them this rhetorical question, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Interestingly, there are three episodes at the end of Luke's gospel, and every episode hinges on a rhetorical question. So there's the empty tomb, the resurrection scene, and there it's angels that ask the rhetorical question, 
Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? The implication is, he's alive. There's this scene, the road to Emmaus, and Jesus asked the question, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer? The implication is, this has not been a failure, but actually in his cross is the success of the whole mission. And then at the very end, Jesus will appear to his disciples, and there he'll ask them, why are you so sad and troubled of heart? The implication is you need to rejoice. As Jesus asked them this question, we come to understand that the piece they couldn't put in the puzzle was the cross. They couldn't factor his death into the narrative. And so Jesus helps them. He responds to their story by telling it afresh, as it were. And to be clear, Jesus could have helped them in a number of different ways. Jesus could have given them a theological argument as to why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. He could have given them a philosophical argument as to why it was necessary that the Christ should suffer. But what he actually does is he gives them a scriptural argument. There is no more sure base than the Word of God. There is no more certain place to be than in the Bible. And so Jesus takes them to the Old Testament and walks them through a series of texts that are directly about him showing them that it had to be this way. God had foreordained, preordained that he would suffer as, as the means by which he would accomplish the task. What texts did Jesus take them to? What did he teach them that day? Wouldn't we love to know? One of the classes that I have the privilege of teaching back at the seminary in L.A. is Old Testament Survey. So every year, mine is the privilege to sit down with the students to begin at Genesis and over the course of one year to walk through the whole Old Testament to Malachi and to show these students the glory of God's redemptive plan, how He worked through the nation of Israel and through the line of David to bring about this man, Jesus Christ. And I read the road to Emmaus account and think, what I would give to know what Jesus said that day. Probably correct a few things that I'm saying in my survey class. We do know, perhaps, at least a few of the texts Jesus would have gone to. When you go to the book of Acts, the apostles give a lot of speeches and one of the things the apostles do in the book of Acts is that they teach about the necessity of Christ's death. And they use certain Old Testament texts to do that, and they learn their theology from Christ himself. And so as we look at the speeches in the book of Acts and see the same text coming up over and over again, it would seem that they learned this from Jesus. And so possibly on this day, Jesus took them to texts like, Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, there's a prophet coming after me. There's one in my likeness who will come after me and who will speak words of truth to you. He will teach you and you are to obey him to secure God's blessing. Maybe he took them to Isaiah 53 and he showed them that this prophet that Moses had spoken about was also a servant and at that, he was a suffering servant. This servant grew up amongst his people with no form or majesty that we should behold him. We considered him stricken and afflicted by God, and yet we understand now that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth, but it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But that is not failure because Isaiah goes on to say this servant will see the righteous ones. He will see those whom are now accounted righteous because of his payment for sin. He will see them and he will be satisfied. And he will share with them his inheritance. From there, Jesus may have taken them to the Psalms. 
to talk about how in Psalm 2, the Lord says, this is my son. He is a ruling, reigning king over the nations. And the right response is that you would embrace him, that you would kiss him and not turn your back on him. Or Psalm 110, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make an enemy of your footstool, a footstool of your enemies. What Jesus does is he weaves together a narrative from Old Testament texts showing them that the cross was not a failure. His death was not tragedy. It was fulfillment. It was triumph. It had to be this way. What's interesting is that after this important conversation, Luke does not record for us how these men responded. Verse 27 ends our time on the road. The next thing we know, we're in Emmaus and we're eating dinner with Jesus. We don't know what the men said in response. Now, I think they were starting to come to some recognition of their error and the truth of the gospel. But regardless, the challenge comes to us as to whether we have truly acknowledged the necessity of a suffering Savior. Or more than that, whether we now rejoice in the fact, whether the cross of the Lord Jesus guides our every thought, whether we have allowed it to permeate into every area of our lives, so that others might look in on our life and say, He concerns Himself with the death of the Lord Jesus. This man is passionate about Jesus Christ, death on a cross. Whether we gladly sing of a man hanging from a tree. Whether we rejoice in the fact that the Savior died, and in that we find our hope. It might be that you've expressed your faith in the gospel, and you do believe these things. By God's grace, He's allowed you to put the puzzle together, and you say, yes, I know my Savior had to suffer. But at the same time, there's lots of other concerns worries, fears, troubles that overtake your focus on the cross. I was sharing just the other day with Pastor Ryan how when we were in the military, it seems like a lifetime ago now, when we were in the military, we moved around a lot. Every two to three years, we would get moved on, and so we'd pack up our home and moved to a new location in the UK, and of course that meant we moved church. We'd meet more brothers and sisters in Christ. We'd get to experience a new church just for a few years, and then we move on. And it was wonderful because you get to experience so many different expressions of the body. At the same time, we never really during those years experienced the pain and the trouble that so many of those believers must have had. The reason for that is because we weren't there long enough. We stayed put for maybe two years, and you feel like you're just getting to know these people and really forming deep friendships with them, and then we were moved on. Naively, we would look back at that time in our life and just think about how wonderful all of those churches were and just free from problems. Now, the churches were good churches. We praise God that we were in good churches, but it would be foolish to think that nobody there had any issues. The churches, as good as they were, nonetheless were made up of broken sinners, just like every church. And to think in a room of this many people that there are no issues would be naive. We all come to church on a Sunday putting on our very best. Our very best is reserved for Sunday. And we could be fooled into thinking that everybody has got everything pieced together. Everything's holding together and going just the way we would want it to go in our lives. The truth is underneath the surface, there is pain and brokenness 
there are deep trials. There are some here this morning that are experiencing firsthand the reality of life in a broken, sin-cursed world. And those trials can so quickly overtake our focus on the cross. Now, God does not belittle your troubles. God does not make light of them. God does not say that they're meaningless. God knows exactly the struggles that you're experiencing this very morning. But the gospel puts all things in perspective. And we understand when we look at the cross that there, God addressed our greatest problem. It is at the cross that God addressed our greatest problem. The reality of our sin before a holy God. And God met us there in the person of His Son. It was His will to crush Him. And in doing, He made a payment for our sin. And now our greatest problem has been solved. And the wonder and the glory of the gospel is such that a few books later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul can write, In Christ we are more than conquerors. Now, the glory of the gospel is such that all of our problems, all of our trials, which are so real, fall under the economy of the cross. And we can exercise trust this morning in the fact that God, in His sovereign wisdom, in some way that maybe you don't fully realize, is using these trials for your ultimate good, for His glory. So much so that one day you'll be in glory with increased understanding and be able to look back on the trials of your life and say, that was the very best thing for me. That is the truth of the gospel. And it begins with a suffering Messiah. We move on in the scene now to the the meal. This is what Caravaggio depicted, the the men around the table. Jesus sat there with the disciples. The reason I say I think they were coming to some kind of increased awareness concerning their error, and more importantly concerning the identity of this man, is because they emphatically urge him. They emphatically request, verse 29, that he stay with them. It seems like there's a a very subtle acknowledgement that this man is no ordinary guy. He's an important figure, and we really want him to stay with us a little longer. Additionally, Jesus gives thanks at the dinner table. That's a role assigned to the person of the utmost authority. Who's the most senior person here? Jesus is the one that gives thanks. They seem to be recognizing something about this man's identity. Notice that in this scene around the dinner table, Luke is a lot more sparse with his details. He doesn't include as much dialogue that we had on the road. It's a a much more condensed summary of what happens. Not that it wasn't important, but what that allows Luke to do is to bring attention to the most important point, and that is that in the breaking of bread, their eyes were opened. They realize this is the risen Christ. Now again, the importance of this scene is only fully appreciated when we zoom out and look at the whole gospel narrative. Just a few minutes ago, I said Luke loves to use journeys as a way of teaching. Luke is also in the way of using meals with great significance in his gospel. You walk through the gospel of Luke, and he often uses meals to teach. And so we think in Luke's gospel, Jesus eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. In Luke's gospel, he tells us about the parable of the the wedding feast. It's in Luke's gospel that we read of the Last Supper and then the supper uh, in Emmaus. There's lots of meals in Luke's gospel, and every time at least one of two things is happening. First of all, 
When people share a meal in Luke's gospel, an association is being formed, a deep association. So Jesus eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. The Pharisees are highly offended. But Luke says, these are the ones I've come to save. Of course I would eat with them. Of course I would associate with them. Not that Jesus has their sin, but he come to pay for their sin. He didn't come for the self-righteous. He came for those who acknowledged their wretched state. I'll eat a meal with these ones. The other thing that happens when meals are shared in Luke's gospel is that great encouragement is issued. The meal itself forms this symbolic act of encouragement that those who participated in could draw from. They could look back in the days to come and say, remember the meal that we had with Jesus. The supper, the last supper, in many ways, majors on that idea. Jesus knows that he's headed to the cross in just a few days, and so he breaks bread with his disciples. He gives them parting instructions knowing how much they would need this encouragement in the days to come. In the same way, this meal at Emmaus serves to form an association and to offer great encouragement. So think first about the association. This is critically important. Up until now, these men have been receiving information about the gospel. There's been this transfer of stories on the road to Emmaus. And the information is necessary. You have to put the pieces together in order to be able to exercise faith in the crucified Messiah. But now, the emphasis shifts from information to participation. Now they have a meal together. And there's no more instruction, but simply a deep association. This meal signifies the disciples signing up, as it were, to the mission. They're now identified with this man for having shared a meal with him. They now participate in the mission of the Lord Jesus. And moving forward, we can only imagine what a sacred memory must have formed in their minds. On seeing Jesus and recognizing him, instantly he vanishes. That's their time with Jesus over. But how sweet a memory they have. How much they must have treasured that meal in the weeks and the months and the years to come when the going got tough. They were able to look back and say, remember that evening. Remember, they say later on, how our hearts were beating while he was with us. Remember how we were there as he prayed to his Father in heaven. How he broke the bread. And do you remember how our eyes were opened in that instant to see who he really was? Great encouragement for these men as Jesus leaves them. The implication, of course, is that as Jesus leaves them, in much the same way that the ascension functions, when Christ ascends into heaven, he's leaving his community of disciples on the earth. Why? Because there's work to be done. In a miniature kind of way, the supper at Emmaus portrays the same reality. They acknowledge who this man is. They no longer need him with them, though they must have dearly wanted him to hang around. But he's gone. And now they have a responsibility. Now they have a responsibility to honor the Lord Jesus, to make him known. That responsibility now confronts them in Jesus' absence. In the same way, that responsibility confronts us. Every time we gather on the Lord's day, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but Jesus is not with us bodily. He's not with us bodily. And we wait. We are a waiting people. We long for the day when Jesus will come back. But until that day, there is work to be done. 
and we have not had a physical meal with Jesus. We have not had that privilege, but we can draw great encouragement from this account and moreover, great encouragement from the reality that we know very soon we will eat with Jesus. When Jesus talks about the wedding feast, there is this strong forward-looking drive to the parable. One day, Jesus will come back and He will gather those who belong to Him, and we will eat with Him in glory. We sang of that very truth this morning in our first hymn, and it needs so often to be the meditation of our hearts that this life will very soon end. Jesus will soon return. He will wrap up history, and those who have put their faith in Him will eat with Him in glory. And that great encouragement presses us on to do the work, the work that has been given to us. Now, what is that work? The very final scene tells us the sure declaration, just the last few verses there, the men return and they proclaim, the Lord has risen indeed. We had heard it this morning. The women reported of it. Some of us even went to check out the tomb and it was empty, but none of us had seen him. Now we can say, the Lord has risen indeed. And you see the logical flow. The men had received the information about Jesus they had formed a deep association with Jesus. They were now identified with Him. And as the beneficiaries of such incredible grace, the only thing they could do was to proclaim Him. The only thing they knew how to do was to proclaim His resurrection. It's as if they can't but speak. And you wonder just how long this conversation went on for. They, they told all that had happened to them on the road. At some point, someone in the room said, we've got to stop, we've got to sleep. You imagine the next day they rose and they just proclaimed Jesus again. And so what is it that our work is as we await for the return of Christ? There's much that we could say to that question. But if nothing else, it is simply that we would speak the truth about Jesus that we would make it our goal to speak the truth about Christ, that we would do that amongst ourselves. Think about when you come to church, we're amongst brothers and sisters who know the gospel, but that does not mean we don't make mention of the gospel. It doesn't mean that Jesus is not on our lips to one another. We can never get beyond the gospel. It is the gospel by which we're saved and sanctified. And so your goal as you come here Sunday by Sunday, as you see each other during the week and have one another into your homes for meals, is to speak the truth about Christ, to rehearse the gospel to one another. This is why testimonies are so encouraging. I love to just ask people, how is it that you came to know the Lord Jesus? To hear their testimony, because in that, the gospel is found. We get to rehearse the gospel with one another, and then you rehearse the gospel to those outside of the church. Your responsibility extends beyond these four walls, and you make sure day by day, in whatever are the circumstances in which the Lord has placed you, you are found to be speaking the truth about Jesus. No matter the cost, doesn't matter what people think of you, doesn't matter what happens to you as a result, you are the recipient of incredible grace. Jesus gave you His saving gospel, and God was gracious to open your eyes that you would acknowledge it to be the truth to form a deep association with His Son, 
And so in response, you speak the truth about Him, and you do so knowing that very soon you will be with Him in glory, enjoying an incredible feast, celebrating the triumph of the gospel. Pray now with me to close. Our Father, we praise You this morning for the suffering Messiah. We praise You that it was necessary that He would come and die on a cross. And we joyfully confess that that is not failure, but fulfillment. His death on the cross was not a tragedy, but a triumph. The victory of the gospel begins with His death on the cross. Our sins have been paid for. And we rejoice that three days later He rose from the grave. He appeared to many, and we put our faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus. His resurrection validates what happens on, happened on the cross. And we confidently celebrate our salvation in Him. We pray You'd encourage our hearts with these truths this morning. And Father, strengthen us to be those who speak the truth about Christ as we wait for Him to return and take us to glory. We ask in His name. Amen. Amen.